This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. A healthcare transfer deal between the Trudeau Liberals and Canada's provincial leaders appears to be imminent. Some of the premiers, including Ontario's, are saying they would be willing to accept conditions on funding, which has been a priority for the prime minister. In fact, a meeting is set for Ottawa February 7th with hope that the new money would be reflected in the next federal budget. But what does all of this mean for the future of care for Canada's aging population? And will home care start to become a priority for both levels of government? While filling in for Libby on Monday, Marissa Lennox was joined by the Zoomer squad to discuss. Peter Mugrich is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. Anthony Quinn is chief community officer at CARP. And Bill Van Gorder is CARP's chief operating and chief policy officer. Good news. Hopefully, fingers crossed that uh, uh, the promises will will come and that uh, there will be more money coming into health care. Uh, Canadians, especially uh, our CARP members, are not looking for uh, uh, getting involved in the argument about who should pay what. What they're interested in is how are we going to get more money into the system so we can get the health care we deserve. CARP Anthony has a good pulse on public opinion, and I have no doubt you hear from CARP members daily on this issue, and I don't think that that would be an exaggeration. So what are you hearing from members? Well, I think the the taxpayers are looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, I, I pay provincial and federal taxes, but there's only one taxpayer. And if they're negotiating between provinces and the federal government, who's representing the patients? Who's making sure that they are being put first? I don't know why they would have to negotiate between themselves. If the goal is to improve the health care of Canadians, that, that shouldn't take negotiation. That should just take a plan. Yeah, that's a good point. Peter, you know, over the weekend, Premier Ford said he'd be willing to accept some of the strings attached to the money. Meanwhile, the prime minister actually described some of Ford's reforms as innovative or innovation, which is a significant change in the direction that the talks were previously going in. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you get the sense that there's some kind of mutual truce going on between them? Uh, because we all know in this room and on the line that uh, Trudeau is no fan of the P word. No. And, um, but, you know, Marissa, I think we reached a, uh, a point at the, uh, you know, last year with the, you know, the, the emergency rooms are closing and people can find a doctor and, you know, nurse burnout and resource shortages. And everyone, I think everyone realized that, you know, th- this kind of posturing, this kind of, you know, uh, little wins, little victories in negotiation has to end. And yeah. it has to be like, we, we have to solve this because, you know, we're we're at a we're at a real crisis point, and uh, you know, there there it, it just has to be solved. And I think everyone is realizing that, and so they're they're being nice to each other right now. Public pressure yeah. for sure, and Huge. also that headline. Yeah. I mean, when somebody can die in an emergency it, room absolutely. waiting room, yeah. Uh, like something stories has like to, that. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. You know, Bill. One of the, uh, the things that the feds have been talking about in terms of conditions, it's 
seemingly innocuous. I mean, reducing surgical backlogs, enhancing primary care, expanding mental health services, fixing long-term care homes, and the data collection piece, which I find really interesting and necessary. Is there anything in this list, this list of strings, that stands out to you as problematic? Well, uh, what's missing from the list seems to be uh, uh, home care. Uh, that uh, is really one of the huge answers to uh, all all the questions. We're never going to build enough uh, long-term care homes to keep the number of people who in the current system would need to be there. And that can only be solved by better home care, and that can only be solved by having more people to uh, deliver it. So home care and staffing or care in your own community and staffing are the uh, key issues that have to be uh, settled first. And that's where the the federal government does have a huge uh, opportunity to both set the standards and goals and also uh, change things like the immigration uh, standards and and regulations so that we can get more people uh, into into the system to serve the people who need that care. Quick final thoughts. Bill, I'll begin with you. Go ahead. I think this is the time when we're talking back to the issue of uh, of uh, federal uh, money to help the provinces. This is when our listeners need to get in touch with their local representatives and say, take this opportunity and let's get some decisions made and stop making seniors the ping pong ball between the two levels of government. Anthony. I'll concur with Bill. I think that this is a historic time. It's a 10-year deal, and we encourage both parties to get it right for uh, this, this aging demographic over the next decade. Peter. I'll, I'll invoke David Kravitz and, and say, like, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a problem. It, it's how you spend it. So that, that, the, the proof will be in, in, in how the provinces actually spend this money. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, Anthony Quinn, chief community officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating and chief policy officer. Fight back's Monday Zoomer squad. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Still with news around the Trudeau Liberals, they have been ordered by a federal judge to repatriate four Canadian men with ties to ISIS, who are currently being held in U.S.-backed Kurdish camps in Syria. The court order comes after it was announced last week that Canada would also repatriate relatives of these men, including six women and 13 children. One of the men goes by the name of Jihadi Jack, who grew up in Britain, became a Muslim, and went to Iraq and Syria in 2014 to join the terrorist fighters. The federal judge ruled the four men are entitled to emergency travel documents from the federal government and a legal representative to facilitate their release. Joining Marissa with their perspectives on the story, Brian Lilly, political columnist for the Toronto Sun, and Ari Goldkind, criminal defense lawyer. All of this comes down to how human beings interpret a document from 1982 or thereabouts, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The idea that not only does a federal court order that these um, potential terrorists are repatriated, but that a Canadian has to fly to Syria, I'm being serious about this, by the way, to help in bringing them back. Now, let me be clear. If there is somebody who was there 
um, by some force or pressure, a woman, a wife, a child that was born. That's probably a bit of a different, more nuanced kind of situation. But when you have people like Jihadi uh, Jack, and that's not a misnomer, by the way, you can look at his own interviews, Mm -hmm. or you look at some of the Canadians, including women who have been forced to be brought back, who went to fight for ISIS. The idea that this is a country that can't cut bait and say, you know what? You made that decision. There are consequences to those decisions, Marissa. We have lost the forest through the trees where there are consequences to people's actions and you cannot have a society where there simply are no consequences to going to fight for enemies that would love to blow up the very country that you're now seeking to save. Mm-hmm. Brian, let's focus on the four men. We'll set aside the families, the women and the children for now. These are Canadian men who, who of their own free will, chose to leave, travel to Syria, presumably not for a vacation. Do you believe Canada has a legal obligation to bring them home? I, um, I don't think so. Um this is, uh, there are thousands of Canadians um, at various times held in foreign jails on all kinds of crimes, and we don't repatriate all of them. You sit in jail. This is a bit stranger for a couple of reasons. Uh, we'll set aside Jihadi Jack. I'll mention him in a moment. Uh, the other three, the, the Kurds have been looking to get rid of them for a long time. They said, look, these are your people. They're not our people. We captured them on the battlefield. We want rid of them. So you kind of get the Kurds trying to push them on us. And you've got activists in this country uh, saying, oh, we've got to help these poor souls. So I'm not surprised that the court eventually got to this point. I'd love to read Justice Brown's decision. I haven't been able to find a, a copy of it yet online. So Ari, if you've got it, flip it to me. I'll read it. But the, I'm not shocked that we got there. But Jack Letts, I'm not even willing to call him a Canadian. Mm. He is a Canadian of convenience. He was born in the UK. He grew up there. He came to Canada a couple of times to visit family. Um, one of his parents is Canadian. You know, I was born in Canada. My parents are from the UK. I went to the UK to visit family. I could have a passport from there if I wanted it. It doesn't... Uh, you know, mean that I think the UK government should help me out if I'm in a bind. I'm a Canadian. Mm-hmm. He's a Brit. The Brits stripped him of his citizenship for going to fight for um, ISIS, something that we used to have in our law, but Justin Trudeau got rid of when he said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Brian, I'll just ask you this last question. There's the intention of wanting to bring about justice. I guess, you know, if these guys do return and they are charged, but then there's the reality and the difficulty of actually prosecuting these guys. There's the gathering of evidence, witnesses, translation. What are the chances that these trials are fraught with issues? I I would be um, uh, more, I'm, I've, have a greater expectation that these people are given money by the government of Canada than I expect them to be charged by the government of Canada. I'm not expecting uh, criminal charges. You're right. Very difficult. Uh, or, you know, these events took place overseas. It was a long time ago. Chain of, um, uh, you know, evidence, all of those things are factors. But those activists that Ari and I are speaking about, they will launch a a, a campaign to try and make sure that these people sue the government and are awarded millions of dollars, just like Omar Cotter.
Brian Lilly, political columnist for the Toronto Sun and criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, when your luggage not only goes missing, but is given to charity. We will talk about that story in the next segment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took office in 2015, the federal Liberals have awarded over $100 million in contracts to McKinsey, a global consulting firm based in the United States and with offices near Young and Bloor in Toronto. Every government hires consultants, but according to public accounts data from Public Services and Procurement Canada, the Liberals have spent 30 times the amount on McKinsey services than the previous Stephen Harper conservative government. There has also been buzz inside Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada that McKinsey has had growing influence on public policy. So who's running the show? The politicians we elected or the hired consultants? Filling in for Libby, Marissa Lennox was joined by our Recovering Politicians panel to discuss. George Smitherman is a former Ontario Liberal Health Minister and Deputy Premier. Peggy Nash is a former Ontario NDP MPP. And Lisa Raitt is a former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader. The elected officials are responsible for the running of the show. Now, that's the key. I mean, we have to, you have to hold those who are elected to living, uh, to performing cabinet, to be the prime minister. They, they're the ones who are ultimately accountable. So they're the ones that are running the show. And I get troubled whenever I hear a minister or even the prime minister say, well, these are, these, these are the issues of the officials. You know, there's no daylight between the two. You are responsible as an elected official for all of the decisions and all of the non-decisions that are taken by the public service. And, and is it a big job? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. But everyone competes to get that job. And when you do get that job, you actually have to fulfill on it. So continuously blaming the public sector as if nobody's in charge of them, I, I find to be, uh, I find to be, um, you know, I, I don't find it to be authentic in terms of of what the reality is. You know, Peggy, consultants are nothing new for government, but the McKinsey contracts seem to be on a whole other level. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, thank goodness the two reporters from Radio-Canada really exposed the extent of the role of McKinsey and its relationship with the federal liberal government. Um, I agree with Lisa that it's it's very troubling because while technically we are supposed to have accountability from our elected officials, where's the accountability with McKinsey? They're saying every you know every request for information is proprietary. We can't get access. Uh, they're not even responding now to emails, um, and they're clearly because they're a private organization. There is no public accountability, whereas. Radio-Canada has shown that uh, through reports, uh, confidential reports from the immigration officials, or immigration staff, that what McKinsey provided 
was often boilerplate advice that others internally could have provided, but their big ask was to hit a target of uh, uh, 500,000 new immigrants. And clearly the government's following that path, but much of the other uh, advice and recommendations clearly could have been done internally. But there's this notion that somehow the private sector always does it better. It really is disrespectful to our public service, to whom uh, we need to hold to account. That's interesting, George. I mean, what's striking to me is, and and Peggy mentioned, the firm was hired in part to transform immigration. And, uh, you know, there's a huge backlog of millions of people in the system and a processing time of more than five years. I mean, where's the line between hiring consultants to support you in your efforts and literally handing entire projects over to to them, it would seem? You know, I think this uh, this really is at the heart of the matter is that uh, the operational government has concluded frequently that it's more adroit to get outside assistance, to be able to move more rapidly. In my experience, that is a move also in a certain sense, the mindset behind the agency model, which governments also rely upon. And my experience in political life has been that the biggest crises and spending challenges and uh, scandals and the like are, you know, typically created in these uh, in these kind of environments. But I do think it comes from a kind of a, a haste to get operational uh, programs up and running or to get decisions into the hopper. I would like to see kind of like what's the comparison with the other big five or six consulting firms is that number actually inordinately out of whack? Mm -hmm. And the only other thing I would say is that, at least in this case, it does seem that they've been attached to a very discernible public policy outcome related to immigration, which I can tell you as a citizen of downtown Toronto, seems clearly evident evident to me. So maybe we'll actually find that their efforts have been tied to something with a really discernible output, because it's not always the case that we find that in our expenditure accountability examinations either. George Smithman, former Ontario Liberal Health Minister and Deputy Premier Peggy Nash, former Ontario NDP MPP, and Lisa Raitt, former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Imagine taking a return flight home to Canada from your honeymoon, only to find your luggage is not there, and later to learn it was given to a charity by a third-party luggage handler hired by Air Canada. That's what happened to Nikita Rees and her husband when they returned to Toronto's Pearson International Airport on September 10th from a vacation in Greece. She joined Marissa on Tuesday to share her experience. Thankfully for our air tag, we were able to watch our luggage move from Montreal to Etobicoke over the last, well, it was only a matter of 21 days, actually, and then it sat for three and a half months. So that's when we, we were like, this, things are a little fishy here, and we decided to investigate a little further, head to the unit, and that's when we got the police involved based on what we found. So for the listeners, I mean, the reason you were able to track your bag is because you had an air tag in it. So you could actually see when it was moving from Montreal to Toronto. Yeah. And when that happened, you were able to follow it, which you found it in a storage facility. Is that right? Yeah, it was a public storage facility. So this is the part of the story where I am gobsmacked because, as I understand, 
You guys looked through the storage facility, and what did you see? So my husband walked up and down the aisles until his tag over was over top of his location. So he peered through like the three-quarter of an inch space in between the door um, to find eventually luggage pushed all the way up to the door, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. And that's when he was like, oh, well, my luggage is definitely in there. But, of course, we don't own that unit. So in terms of privacy, they couldn't open it for us. So that's where I, we had to get the police involved and get a warrant and did the that. Did the police say what the luggage was doing there? So when they contacted Air Canada the first time, Air Canada stated that it was owned by third-party baggage handlers. Then they went and uh, went through about 100, they said, bags, in which one wasn't ours because there was about 400 left. And then Air Canada stated it was actually owned by charity and our luggage was donated under legal means. The ch- so all of the bags in this room, floor to ceiling, wall to wall luggage is now owned by charity. Is that what you're saying? That's what they're saying, in which I'm about to go get the police report to see what this charity actually is. But mm-hmm. when we talked to the manager of who called us yesterday, called my husband yesterday, the manager of bag air. Uh, Air baggage, I believe. It's, it's Air Canada's third representative that delivers baggage. It's the global baggage team. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. He said that they found it in a warehouse and had to look through 1,200 bags. But they found it in less than 48 hours. Wow. So nothing adds up. I'm just as confused or more confused now than I've almost ever been. So now that you have your bag back, uh, w- what happens? What happens to the rest of the bags in that facility? And that's, you know what, and that's why we're still fighting. Like our call to action, we're, we, our call to action is to get in touch with the CTA and the Ministry of Transportation because policy and bill of rights and things like that need to change. Like passenger rights need to be above a lot of things, above where it is now. And we, we plan on taking this legally. And, mm-hmm. and we are discussing with a lawyer because it's not finished. Mm-hmm. Great. We got our bag back. Awesome. What about those other 1,200 people, apparently, of this warehouse of baggage? And it's the principal at this point. They've well, breached their policy. Not just the principal. I think it's worth mentioning that you're a working woman, your time is valuable, and how much of your time has been spent on this nonsense? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now more than ever. But, you know, I get it on hold seven times for about an hour each time to get in contact with a Air Canada representative that's across in a different country in which they were not able to help me. So they're seven, seven and a half hours alone. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? You- it's just time adds up and time is valuable. And I feel like Air Canada doesn't see that as it's not valuable to them. For people that have impending trips, what advice do you have? <sighs> Get a tag, <laughs> get a tracker of some kind. Um, make sure that baggage tag is secure. And I don't know what it's going to paint on the inside, embroider on the inside. Just get your name and your address in there in every possible way you can. So there's zero excuse and you can hold your airline accountable if they can find your bag in at least 21 days. Nikita Reese of Cambridge, Ontario, on her unique experience of losing her luggage to charity. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat in Toronto phoned during our segment on government contracts. The answer is very simple. Turn it over to the Auditor General. These are the people that know how to investigate. Do not turn it over to a parliamentary committee. The Auditor General are are there and they are confident and they know what they're doing. And government hates auditors because they get to the facts. You know what's going through my mind? How many millions, if not billions, were spent on the payroll system at the federal government? And what's ever happened with that? I mean... I, I, I remember the number. I think I stopped at five hundred million. But I mean, I mean, has anybody ever dug into that? I mean, this is a repeat all the time, and nobody follows what the auditor general says to do. Jody in Toronto phoned about increased incidences of violence in Toronto and on the TTC. No, our city is totally unsafe, and it's getting worse. And it isn't just on the TTC; it's everywhere. Yesterday, coming out of the grocery store. I watched a lady being mugged and her car being taken away from her and her being taken to the hospital in a in an ambulance. We talk about uh, looking at these things. What is the root cause? The root cause. Uh, Mayor Tory keeps talking about root cause. We have to look at who's raising these kids. That's the root cause. Rosie in Toronto also called in about all of this random violence. There's a movie back in the 70s called A Clockwork Orange, it's actually coming to life now. Uh, the youth are taking over, and I guess that's about it. But the point is, it's not the fault of the children, it's the parents. Mm. They're all entitled, they're all spoiled, and I do mean all. You don't see any without iPhones on the, on the bus, or in fact, if they take the bus, that would be a big surprise, because you get children everywhere they go, until they're old enough to drive, and then they get a car. So I guess that's about it. But it's a sad situation that we find ourselves in. Joe in Etobicoke phoned with an idea to improve public safety. In England, they have cameras. Where they know exactly what you're doing. There's no crime as much as here, I don't think. And they can, even if you're in a corner, they know you're doing this bad thing. I think we need cameras. We need cameras. If we can get cameras to cover Toronto, believe me, it'll, it'll, it'll soften the time. It'll soften the police. The police will have more to do. And that's what I think. Cameras. Cameras your solution. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Helen in Mississauga who joined the conversation about random violence on the TTC and among young people. I think with the police uh, or uniforms, as you say, on, on site, I think it would be a good deterrent. And also, I think for a lot of young people, they, they know that they, their name doesn't go out. They don't, they don't have to answer much to anything. They're out on bail, even, you know, everyone. And for the... People that are having mental issues, if the police were even there, they could, you know, at least take them somewhere to help them. 
um, or get someone to help them. But I think for the average one, it's not, it's not necessarily mental issues. It's people just running around being bad. I grew up in Toronto and we just knew, like when the police said stop, you stopped. If they asked you a question, you answered the question. Like there's, there's nobody that they have to be accountable to when they're doing these things. And uh, I think yeah, sometimes it's, there's mental issues, but I think other times it's just getting up to trouble. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.